Have you ever um, personally felt the bitter sting of betrayal? Um, I, I'm, I'm confident that probably everybody in here could say they have. There may be some young children who, who might not say or know that experience yet. Maybe, maybe a trusted friend has turned against you. Maybe a, a business partner, a long-time business partner, schemed and stole from you. Maybe you, there was an unfaithful spouse. Um, maybe you've been grievously sinned against by someone that you trusted. Betrayal is surely one of life's most emotionally painful experiences. It's one thing to be hated by your enemies, but to be betrayed by your friends is one of the darkest experiences that a human being can ever endure. And part of the pain of betrayal for us is the shock of it all. We just don't suspect that someone close to us, someone we care for and who seems to care for us, that they would inflict that kind of pain uh, on us. Well, Jesus knew the pain of betrayal. As he talked about it with the disciples, just, just talking about it, the text says he was troubled in his spirit. He was shaken to the core of his being, his considering this. He was shaken, but he wasn't shocked by the betrayal. He knew that this was God's will. He knew, he knew all along that Judas was what he was scheming in his heart against him. Judas fooled everybody else. Nobody else suspected it. None of the other 11. That's very clear in the, in the text. He, he didn't have some, uh, you know, sinister look. He didn't have some, you know, kind of evil glint in his eye that gave him away. There was a vote for the most likely to betray. Nobody would have picked Judas out over the others. There's nothing that made him stand out as, as being one who might do this. But Jesus knew. <laughs> Jesus knew. He was a great actor, but Jesus saw his heart. He knew what was in him. And Judas' betrayal, it says a lot about Judas. It says a lot about sinful humanity. It shows us the depths of sin. But it says even more, I would say, about Jesus. And, and that's what we see. Judas' betrayal is like, it's like the black velvet that you see in a, in a jewelry box at a, at a jewelry store. And it just makes the, the, the brightness and, uh, and, the, and the diamond of Christ's glory shine all the brighter against that black, that black backdrop. And so we're, gonna, we're not going to focus on Judas this morning. I know that would be one way to preach this text. It would be to talk about what, what, how could somebody do this? Honestly, we could all have done this. It's but for the grace of God. We don't have to spend much time figuring that out. The question is not, Lord, why would Judas do this? How could he do this? The question is what we're saying, Lord, why was I, I guess? Why, did, why was I made to hear your voice? And so, so we're not going to linger on Judas. He, we're going to talk about him, but he's in the background. We're going to fix our gaze on and revel in the glories of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what we're going to spend our time doing this morning. You, you know the scene where, where we began last week in the upper room with the disciples. And, and, and so Jesus is gathered there with the disciples around this table. And, and you, you know the famous paintings, of, particularly of Leonardo da Vinci in the 15th century, the mural he painted on that convent in Milan of the Last Supper. It's one of the most famous paintings in the world. And uh, there's not much left of the original painting that survived to this day, but, but you've seen this painting and, and other uh, uh, copies of this painting. And it pictures Jesus with his disciples. Again, we talked about this last week. We'll talk again. It's not accurate in the sense that they're not all sitting on one side of a banquet table sitting in chairs. That's not the picture. But what, what da Vinci is representing in that scene is right here. The inspiration is verse 21 of ch- chapter 13. It's a statement, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so what that painting is showing is the surprise, the shock, the distress of the disciples at that announcement. And so I I should have thrown it on the screen. I don't know if that would be violating any copyright laws or what, but you can, you can Google the image later and you'll, you'll see that's what da Vinci is, is showing. And, and, and it is, it's a shocking moment. It's a distressing moment, and John captures that for us. But again, against this darkness, and the verse 30 ends, 
and it was night. Yes, it was. It was dark. That doesn't, doesn't just mean the sun went down. That John, I think, is intentionally choosing that word to, 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 there's a double meaning there. There's spiritual darkness. It's nighttime in the soul of Judas. And it's going to be dark for Jesus even as he goes forth because of Judas' action. But it's against, again, that darkness that we see the brightness of Christ's glory. And so that's what we're going to see as we walk through this passage. What do we see of the glories of Jesus against this dark backdrop? Only, only 11 points in the sermon today. So you'll, you'll, you'll be proud, glad for that. Actually, every sermon only has one point. We want to see the glories of Christ against this backdrop. But 11 subpoints. nothing on the screen, so you note-takers just going to have to listen. Short statements, but... Just think of that diamond, of Christ's perfections, His glory is that diamond. These are 11 facets of that that really sparkle in this passage against that backdrop of Judas's treachery. So the first one is this, is the unparalleled wisdom of Jesus. Unparalleled wisdom of Jesus. Verse 18. Now verses 18 to 20, they're, they're really a preface to the, to the big shocking announcement that comes in verse 21. And so he begins the setup of verses 18 to 20 with these words. I am not speaking of all of you. And this is looking back to what we were talking about last week in verses 10 to 11. Not everyone was clean. Judas was not clean. He hadn't had a bath and, 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 and that been washed in, the, in that radical cleansing of conversion. And so he says, not all, I'm not speaking of all of you. But then he says, I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. Have, have you ever wondered, why did Jesus pick Judas in the first place to be part of his inner circle? Why, 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 even, why even bring him in? I'm, I'm sure that the eleven thought that. In the aftermath of Jesus' death and, and then betrayal and death, they're thinking, why, why was Judas among us? If Jesus knew why. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He knew what sort of man he chose to be his disciples. And when he says, I, I know whom I have chosen, I don't think that's a salvation election word. This is, this is just the same way he uses a word, uh, this word in John chapter 6, verse 70. He, he knows who he chose to be part of that group, the twelve. He knew what he was doing. He knew the character of these men. He knew what was in these men. He knew their hearts. He knew what kind of man Judas was and all of the other disciples he knows he spent an entire night in prayer before he chose the 12 he knew the father's will for him was to be crucified and so he chose judas as one of the 12 none of the other disciples understood understood the necessity of the cross until after the resurrection and so they couldn't couldn't understand at the time why he would have chosen judas well, who, who plays this key role in the events leading up to Jesus' death. But, but Jesus is illustrating what Isaiah 55, 8 says, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And here we see this, this wisdom of Jesus coming through, and even in His choice of the twelve. We, you know, brothers and sisters, we, we, don't, we do not always understand God's ways. And we can't. Um, especially when God allows us to be betrayed, for instance, or allows us to be sinned against in some grievous way. But we do know God. We know our Lord and we know that He is infinitely wise in all that He does. And so, this is the first thing. We see this unparalleled wisdom of Jesus Christ in, in choosing the twelve, even though it seemed like complete foolishness to the other eleven, no doubt. Second, facet of the glories of Jesus. We see the spot-on fulfillment of Jesus. Spot-on fulfillment. Verse 18, again, our Lord quotes Psalm 41. I want you to turn to, Psal turn to Psalm 41 with me, please. Turn to Psalm 41, and we need to see this together. Uh, psalm 41 is the Psalm of David, and, and again, this is part of that preface to the grim announcement in verse 21. And so, the news that he's about to give them in verse 21, it's fulfilled Scripture, it's not just some series of unfortunate events like they, oh man, didn't see that coming. Too bad that happened. No, this is, this is fulfilled scripture. And so he, and that's how he begins. Or in verse 18, he said, Jesus says in John 13, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. But Psalm 41, just 
We don't, we won't read the whole psalm, but let's start in verse 4. Again, David writes, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. So first, he's confessing his own sin. And he goes on, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. So then he cries out to God and he's, he's, he's crying out to God about his enemy who's spreading these vicious lies about him and, and all kinds of, 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 of this false witness against him. And he continues and describes this anguish that, that the enemy is causing him. Verse 7, he says, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him or probably more likely a disease has clung to him. He will not rise again from where he lies. And then the climax of this lament is in verse 9. This is the worst part of all. And just see how David says it. Even, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. You see, he's piling up those phrases just saying, this is the worst possible part of this. Even my close friend, who the one whom I trusted, who ate with me. He has lifted up his heel against me. David wrote these words about um, his close friend Ahithophel. He joined Absalom in his rebellion against David. And, and so he's stabbed in the back by one of his closest associates, his friends. And so Psalm 41, this is what Jesus, he points to and he says, this is, the scriptures are being fulfilled. It's happening all over again now. Now, Psalm 41 in its entirety is not a messianic psalm. It's not all about Jesus because at the beginning, again, David's confessing his sin before God. That has zero application to Jesus. But the part that does apply, again, is verse 9. Jesus says, Scriptures will be fulfilled that my own friend, my close friend in whom I have trusted, the friend who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In the ancient Near East, to be betrayed by a friend was a heinous act. But the, 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 the most despicable kind of betrayal would be a friend who had actually shared bread at your table. The table was the center point. It's not like we think where we just kind of casually eat with people and we go to restaurants and just and sit down. And the thing now is to have these common tables in restaurants and you just eat with strangers. That's, that's not the scene. It's, it's this intimacy, fellowship at the table. And so on the night, on this night, and back to John 13, Jesus breaks bread with his closest companions on earth. People he's spent more time with and knows more intimately than anyone else over his the previous three years. And he passes this bread among the disciples and one of them has lifted his heel against Christ. Now Ahithophel's betrayal of David is somewhat rational at least. Ahithophel was a relative of Bathsheba. You remember Bathsheba who David seduced and, and David had her husband murdered. And so you kind of understand that Ahithophel's family had been damaged by David's sin and so we sort of get that betrayal. But Judas... He had no such complaint against Jesus. He had never been sinned against by Jesus. Because Jesus had never sinned. There was nothing Judas could point to and say, well, this is why I did it. Now, Jesus' language, again, it's still veiled at this point. The disciples aren't clued into the gravity of what's coming in verse 21. That's when the, then the, really the veil is lifted for them. So he's still preparing them for what he's about to make clear in verse 21. So verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. This brings us to the third facet of the glories of Jesus, and it's the selfless concern of Jesus. The selfless concern of Jesus. He's revealing His heart for His disciples here. He shows what kind of teacher and master and Savior and Lord He is. He's displaying this affectionate, this personal concern for His own as He's preparing them for what's to come. And so He knows that Judas's betrayal is going to rattle them. It could, could even undermine their faith. And so he, he, they, they might begin to think that Jesus was just some kind of helpless victim against the plotting and the scheming of Judas. 
And Jesus doesn't want that. He wants him to believe him, who he is. And so that, 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 that they could have these wrong thoughts, their faith could be shaken, unless Jesus is able to convince them that whatever is going to happen, it, is, it did not take him by surprise. And so this is what Jesus is doing. It, it's motivating Jesus to tell them ahead of time is his love for them. He wants them to believe. He's caring for their souls. It's all happening according to plan. And so he, he wants them to be able to come out on the other side of, his, of Judas' betrayal and of Jesus' arrest and his, and his crucifixion and, and the resurrection. And he wants them to remember what he said. And that their, that their faith would be made stronger in him. He's dealing with his disciples like a loving mother who prepares his child by explaining the things that are about to come in a way they can understand just to prepare them for some difficult thing they're going to have to walk through. And what they must continue to believe is that Jesus is, I am. That's the fourth facet of this glory. It's the supreme lordship of Jesus. Verse 19, that you may believe that I am He. Literally just, I am. That He is added. Ego, a me in the Greek. Jesus tells the disciples in advance, so that they might believe that I am who I am. You recognize that language from the Old Testament. Throughout the Gospel of John, we've been seeing these I am statements of Jesus where he uses this formula. He's borrowing it from the Old Testament, from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that, that, that was used in, in this time. And so this is that supreme title or name for God Yahweh, as it's rendered in the Greek, ego and me, I am. And this is what Jesus wants his disciples to believe. So he says in advance about what's going to happen and the scriptures being fulfilled and he's in charge. He knows what's going on because he cares so much for their souls and he wants them to deeply believe in their, in their, in their core that Jesus is the I am. He's Lord. And so, so he, he does all of this and, and, and we need to see this. Jesus isn't, he isn't weak. He isn't, he isn't helpless. He doesn't have his hands chopped off like some sermon illustrations have used. We're not his hands and feet. He's mighty. He's Lord. He's reigning. He's working. He's accomplishing his purpose. He's building his church. And it, it cannot be stopped. He's Lord, brothers and sisters. Jesus wants us to, 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 to believe that. He wants His disciples to believe that because He knows they're gonna, it's going to seem like it's defeat. They're going to they're walk to Gethsemane and they're going to see Jesus weeping and sweat drops of blood coming from His brow. And as he, says, he says, Father, let this cup pass from Me. And they're going to see a broken Jesus. They're going to see Judas come and it's going to seem like darkness is won. When he's, when he's arrested and they're going to see him beaten and whipped and Peter's going to deny him and he's going to be crucified on that cross and naked before all the world and helpless and it's just awful and it's going to seem like defeat and says, when it's all said and done, Jesus says, I care for you and I want you to understand that I am Lord. I reign. This is all part of my plan to accomplish your salvation. And so he says, I, I got to see the Lordship of Jesus. Fifth. And this is connected. We need to see the full deity of Jesus. The full deity of Jesus. The godness of Jesus. Verse 20. We see this little formula that we've seen throughout John. This, this solemn declaration. Truly, truly I say to you. Whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now I've wrestled with the placement of this verse all week. I confess. This has been a little bit of an enigma to me because I, it seems almost like this kind of random insertion in here. You could read from verse 19 to verse 21 almost more smoothly if you just skip this verse. Now, please don't throw stones at me. I'm not a heretic. I, I do not think this is a random insertion. Uh, this, is, this is a solemn declaration that God intends to be right here by His Spirit through the Apostle John as he writes. And, I, and it does fit, but it's taken a little work this week to try to see the flow of of, of what John is communicating here by the Spirit. But this is what I think Jesus, or what John is saying, or what Jesus is saying, and this is why this is here. He's saying, regardless of the new, dark, wicked turn of events that's about to become very clear for the disciples, regardless of that, Jesus remains Messiah. 
Son of God, clothed with the authority to send out his ambassadors. I think that's what he's saying. Remember, he's still getting them ready for verse 21. He hasn't even really made the big, full, clear announcement in verse 21. This is, this is preparatory. So when the disciples, again, see their Lord delivered into the hands of his enemies, let them not despair. They shouldn't think, now it's all over. And we're all over. And, and, and because uh, not, it's not just him, it's, it's us, we're done. And Jesus is saying, no, everything continues as it was. I, I'm still God, still one with the Father. You're still sent by my authority. In a sense, everything is about to change, but in another sense, nothing changes. Jesus has already said these things. He's already affirmed His full deity. Christ and the sender are one. I am one with the Father, John 10, verse 30. To receive Christ is to receive the sender, God. To reject Christ is to reject God. So he's, he's made that clear. He's, he's, he's already given them this commission and he's explained these things. And that commission hasn't changed. He told them when he sent them out a couple years earlier on a short-term mission trip. He says, the one who receives you receives me. And, and so what he's saying is he's, he's affirming his deity. He's affirming his oneness with the Father. He's affirming his authority to send them out. He's God. They will remain ambassadors for Christ. So that when they say to anyone... To use the words of Paul, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That they can, they can, that, that it's just, that God Himself, through their preaching, is making that appeal in to the sinner. That's what Jesus is saying to them. That has not, that will not change, even for us. And again, verses 18 to 20. All the big setup for what we're going to see now in verse 21. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He was troubled in his spirit. Oh, get this. Jesus is in sovereign control over all the events that are happening here. Nothing has taken him by surprise. Even his death. Verse 18 of John 10, you remember, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to raise it back up again. So he hadn't lost control. He hadn't lost control even with Judas working to betray him. He knows what will take place. He knows what must take place. But he's not, listen to me, he's not some stoic actor. He's not just playing his part detached from the emotions and the reality of what's happening right now. No, he, he's troubled in his spirit. He's, in a, in a deep, gut-level, but visible way, he is shaken. It's the same word back in, after Lazarus died, when just the, the gravity of sin and death, and, and it just settled on Jesus. Jesus was just troubled. And, and, and this, is, this is what he's saying. So one, the sixth facet of this diamond of Christ's beauty and his glory is this. It's the true personhood of Jesus. The true personhood of Jesus. You see, his deity, he knows what's going on. He's in control of what's happening. But, and his humanity intermingled here. Fully God, fully man, one person. And he's troubled. There are many reasons he's troubled in his spirit on this occasion. John MacArthur just, I think, gives a helpful list of some of these reasons. Let me just list them off. Because of his unrequited love for Judas. Because of the ingratitude in Judas's heart. Because he had a deep hatred of sin and it was sitting right next to him, sin incarnate. Because he was socializing with the one who was about to betray him. Because he was about to lose contact with Judas. Because he knew of the eternal destiny of hell. Because he could see with his omnipotent eye Satan moving around Judas. Because he had a knowledge of the sin of the betrayer and the terrors of eternal punishment. Because he senses all that sin and death meant. Because he had an inner awareness that Judas was a classic illustration of the wretchedness of sin. Sin he would, he would have to bear in his body on the very next day. Sin he would die for. Sin he would absorb the Father's wrath for. So there's all that I think is going into this. He's troubled in his spirit. Fully God, fully man, troubled. And then he makes this announcement, verse 21. Again, truly Truly, I say to you, get this. 
one of you will betray me. Now he's, he's already foretold that he would be betrayed. But this is, this is personal. This is, this, is, this is huge. This is a bomb that just went off around that table. It's just the twelve. It's the closest companions of Jesus on earth. It's the twelve and Jesus. And he says, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, you see the response of the disciples. The disciples looked at one another. And they're startled and they're confused. And you've got to get into the skin of those sitting around that table. Yeah, this, is what, this is what John wants. We saw this last week with the washing of the feet. The language is, he's trying to get us to sense this. As John is writing, it's as if the soul-shaking words of Jesus about the betrayer are still ringing in his ears. It's not some distant, dusty memory for John. It's like, it's like it just happened, even though it was a half a century earlier, probably from when he's writing these words. He can still picture the, the looks on the disciples, the other disciples' faces. The grief, and just the fear, and the shock. And he can still see our Lord troubled in his spirit as he says these things to the disciples. And so try, try to grasp what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and, and, and why they're behaving the way they are. So, you, listen, just put yourself, you go into the upper room, and, and you've been listening to Jesus the last several weeks talk about how he is going, has to go to Jerusalem and how he's going to die there. And, and, and he tells you now that the hour is at hand. So you're there and, and here's the thing, every, you know that everything Jesus has ever spoken has been nothing but the unvarnished truth. And so, he suddenly announces to you, one of you is going to betray me. And you know, it's true. You know that it will happen. The betrayer is at the table right now. Jesus doesn't say who the somebody is. I think there was a fleeting moment when every man in that room, minus Judas, just had that thought. Oh no. Please, no. Don't let it be. And you look at the parallel accounts and to the man, every, everybody said, is it I, Lord? There. And so, so don't miss the the sharp reality of the scene, the, the, the real personhood of Jesus. The, and the, and the, even the personhood of the disciples. But, so this is what we see. So verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And that word looked, it's present tense. It, it, it means that they kept on looking. They're, it's not like, huh. No, they're, they're just trying to figure this out and they're looking around the room and if there's some giveaway of who this could possibly be, surely it's not me, and looking around and, and so they're in dismay, a loss of what's going on. There's a traitor in their midst. And then verse 23, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. And this is a sm- small point, but it, I mean, huge statement. But the thing we need to see of the, the glories of Jesus is seventh, it's the love of Jesus, the deep love of Jesus. This is the first time we've seen this expression in the Gospel of John it, but it's, so it's worth a little explanation. Who was the disciple whom Jesus loved? Um, of course, Jesus loved all the disciples, even Judas, we could say. But by common consent, this is a reference to John, the son of Zebedee, um, the writer of this gospel account. And he, and he uses this language for himself for a couple reasons. One is it's a way of staying anonymous as he writes this gospel account. Even though the other disciples are called by name, he, he's never referred to by name. If he's referred to anything, it's, it's one of the sons of Zebedee or it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the only way he refers to himself. And so it's a way of not pointing to himself, not, not drawing attention to himself. He's just a guy in the background, just somebody at the table. So that's one reason. Another reason, I, I think, is it's because the love of Christ so overwhelmed John. He doesn't mean, Jesus loved me more than others. That's not what he's saying. What he means is, I I didn't deserve it at all. But Jesus loved me. 
He never, he never overcame the thrill of knowing the love of Christ, being loved by Him. He's not boasting of His own love for the Savior. He's glorying in the Savior's love for Him. Let me just ask you, are you over God's love for you in Christ? Does it still overwhelm your soul when we sing words like we just sang a moment ago? Oh, why was I made to hear your voice and in a while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Lord, it's your love. Is the most important part about your identity that I am loved by Christ? It's not what you, or is it what you do? Is it how you dress? Is it is it um, is it what you what kind of music you like? Is it your popularity? Is it your IQ? Is it your GPA? Is it your athletic ability? Is it your success in business? Is it is it financial um, financial prosperity that you have? Is it is it anything else? Is that what really is important to you as you think of your identity, or is it this? Is it I am loved by Christ? That's what matters. It's hard. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want my identity to be, to be tied up in, in my role as a pastor, my ability to preach sermons or, or to, to have the perfect family or to, to, do some, to, to have some appearance. Lord, help me to, to, to just be settled with this, to be okay with this and to, to delight in this that I am loved by you. This is John. This is how he sees he doesn't. He ha, he would be the first to say that Jesus loved every man in this room, but he is overwhelmed with God's love for him in Christ. So here's the scene. Again, it's not the Leonardo da Vinci banquet table with chairs. It's we talked about this last week. It's this U-shaped table for these important feasts like Passover, low to the ground. They reclined at the table, leaning on their left elbow, and there were these, it was kind of this angled cushion that they would recline upon. So, I don't know. I don't guess it was so uncomfortable. It sounds awful to me. Uh, but I'm, when I go to visit places where they sit on the ground, I just don't know what to do. I can't sit Indian style. Uh, I like my chair. Um, but they're reclining, feet pointed away from the table. And, and, um, and, and we know John is at the right of Jesus. And the way it's described makes that very clear. He's, he's, he's uh, at the breast, the chest of Jesus. So as Jesus is leaning on his left elbow, John's right there, you know, facing away from him. But next to Jesus on his right. Peter, it seems, is probably across from John or somewhere else around the table. Because he, verse 24, so Peter, Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to the disciple whom Jesus loved, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Not sure how that went. What kind of hand signal was used or nonverbal communication was used. You know, the point, you know, what, what, what Peter did. But somehow he motions to John to, to ask. And so that disciple, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Again, so if you can imagine, John just leaning over his left shoulder back. And now he's head to head, face to face with Jesus to ask him this. And so the eighth facet, and then I'll explain why I say this. The eighth facet of Christ's glories that we see here is the rock-solid truthfulness of Jesus. The rock-solid truthfulness of Jesus. Now you say, where do you see that? Well, I'll show you. So John, again, sitting to the right of Jesus, looks back over his left shoulder, face to face with Jesus, and he whispers to Jesus, and don't think calm, cool, and collected, Lord, who is it? No, John's shaken. Lord, who is it? He's, he's just as disturbed as the rest. And in John's question, though, listen, so I mean, there is an affirmation of the truthfulness of Jesus. John does not ask. He doesn't say to Jesus, surely not. Jesus. He doesn't say there, there's no way. You can't be serious. No, he knows that every time, we said this a moment ago, every time Jesus has ever spoken, it's been nothing but the truth. And so when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, his question isn't, this can't be, there's got to be a mistake. He says, no, Lord, who is it? He knows it's true. John believes what Jesus said. And so this bombshell is dropped on the 12, and John simply says, who, 
Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And this is the ninth facet of the glories of Jesus, the, 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 the amazing grace of Jesus. The amazing, I know that phrase, amazing grace, seems kind of stale because we've, we've sang that song so much, but don't let, it, let that ring fresh as we see this unfold here in verse 26. It, it seems that even before John ever asked the question to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus has already breaking off, broken off a piece of the little flat unleavened cake on the table and has a piece of that in his hand when he asks the question. So he's holding it in his hand and he whispers to John that the traitor is the man. He's going to give this piece of bread that after he dips it into the bowl, he's going to give it to the traitor. And so he dips it in the bowl, takes it out, gives it to Judas. Now, John knows who the traitor is. Does he tell Peter? I don't know. Uh, That would have been a risky move. Um, Because we know Peter had a dagger on him already. I mean, the other disciples may too. He had his concealed carry permit. And um, he's not the most, you know, you can imagine. But why why does Jesus answer John this way? Think about that. Why not just whisper back? It's Judas. Why, why, why this whole dipping in bread and giving it to him and in this, in this way? What he's doing is he's impressing upon Judas the gravity of his crime. It's a warning. He's showing, again, remember Psalm 41.9, he, Judas is about to betray the one from whose very own hand he's eaten. He's just showing the, the gravity of the betrayal. My, my, my friend, the one with whom I ate bread, has lifted his heel against me. It's not, it's not like Jesus is saying, well, that's what Psalm 41.9 says, so I guess I better do that so that Scripture is fulfilled. That's not what he's saying. He's, he is pressing upon Judas the warning of that passage. Showing the gravity of it. So John, John knows it's Judas. And so it's this, it's this warning, but it's also a gesture of tenderness. He's feeding him. The one who's going to turn him over. He's being patient and gentle with this betrayer to the end. And again, think about this scene for a moment. Where must Judas be seated? There's a lot of speculation, a lot of ink spilled by scholars on this point. And you're trying to understand the dynamics of all the conversations around the table, putting all the parallel passages together and trying to understand the positioning of the disciples around this table. And we can't be crystal clear. It's, it's clear that John is seated to the right hand of, of Jesus. And we think right hand, we think seat of honor because there's, uh, understandably, that's, that's correct in certain contexts. But in the ancient Near East culture, at the dining table, the left hand seat is actually the seat of honor. And, and so we're not told who's there at the left hand, the place of honor. It's probably not Peter, because Peter would have probably just whispered to Jesus, Lord, who is it, instead of motioning to John to ask Jesus for him. So the most likely answer is that the man sitting in the seat of honor, the man who is close enough for Jesus to simply reach over and give him bread, is Judas. What is that? It's grace. It's grace. It's grace to give Judas, the betrayer, the seat of honor. It's grace that he, he's fed by the Lord. It's, it's grace that Jesus doesn't just rat him out right now in front of the others. It's grace that, that our Lord shows so much patience and restraint. It's grace that He warns. James Montgomery Boyce, longtime pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he said of this, he, 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 Jesus, knew that the Scripture said that one of the twelve would betray Him. He knew that Judas was that one. Yet throughout the years of his ministry, so far as we can tell, not only was Jesus patient with Judas, he was so patient that not one of the disciples ever detected any telltale differences in Jesus' dealings with him that might cause them to be suspicious of him. That is the marvelous grace, the patience of our Lord. And it's displayed right to the end. This is incredible. Jesus, just the fact that he didn't, throughout the three years of ministry with these twelve and the time they spent together, he didn't just take jabs, verbal jabs at Judas and just shun him and, 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 and he, knowing what he'd do, knowing what was in his heart. 
right up to the end. There's nothing on Jesus' countenance that gives it away to the others. There's still, there's still the warmth. There's still that inviting look of Christ and the tenderness of, of feeding Judas right to the end. And again, there's the divine mystery here that we cannot possibly comprehend and, and don't expect me to do this. That Yes, Jesus knew this was God's predetermined plan uh, uh, that, that Judas would be that betrayer. And yet he genuinely loved Jesus, uh, Judas and held out to the end this invitation of grace. And we see the glory of Jesus the same way today though, don't we? We don't, we, don't have our, we don't have glasses we can put on and see who, what's in a man, but Jesus knows. He, he endures the hostility of sinners against him, Hebrews says, with amazing patience and love. When, I, when, when we see the wickedness in the world, we see the, just kind of the brazen blasphemies that are spoken against Jesus today, and we hear it all the time. I mean, it's, it rouses us up, and we... Just, just, just get them, Lord. And, and that day will come, Second Peter 3.10. But the day will come, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bottles will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the day is coming. But you back up one verse. What does Peter say? He explains why that day is delayed in verse three, verse 9 of Second Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. He's gracious. If you've not trusted in Christ, God is patiently, lovingly entreating you to come to him for eternal life while you still can. And you can do that even now. And you can say, Lord, I believe. I trust you. I, I need the life that you have. I, this righteousness that I've been clinging to of my own is, will, grant, will merit me nothing. I need, I need what I cannot provide on my own. I, I do not have the good works. I need, I need you, Christ. And you can know that life now. The last, uh, it's tenth, two more. Tenth facet of the glories of Jesus here. It's the unrivaled sovereignty of Jesus. Verse 27. And after he had taken the morsel, after Judas taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That's interesting, isn't it? And we don't, we're not going to be able to do all of our demonology here and what, what that is and the study on that. But I would just say earlier... Judas had sold his soul to the devil, in a sense, for 30 pieces of silver. Well, Satan's coming right now to, to, to collect on that. That's, what, that's my way of saying that. Contrary to the film portrayals of Judas, let me just say this. I know there have been movies of Passion of the Christ, and, and you, you might get the feeling that Judas is some kind of passive victim here. Like, he, he doesn't want this, but Satan just kind of comes and enters into him. That is not what's happening. Judas knew exactly what he was doing. Um, scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The, there's no mystery about what to do when you come under great temptation. It's resist. And, and you call scripture to your aid. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted by the devil. Judas did not resist. He did not take refuge in the biblical testimonies of God's faithfulness. He, he cooperated with the enemy of souls and he lost his own in the process. And then Jesus simply utters one brief sentence to him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Do quickly. And quickly may not be the best rendering of that. It's, it may be better to say, do quicker. That doesn't sound as good. Do it faster. He's saying, speed it up. Get moving now. Um, Jesus and Judas knew what was meant by that. The others had no clue what he's talking about. The, the, the group doesn't know what's going on with Judas. He, Judas suddenly jumps up and he, 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 he leaves after hearing Jesus say, work faster, basically. And they don't know what that means. Verse 28, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast. So go before, while shops are still open, get what we need uh, for, for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. Now Judas cared nothing for the poor. He stole from the money bags and what was collected to give to the poor. 
But the disciples, again, they're, they're, they're not clued in that it's Judas at this point, other than John. So, verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately, he immediately went out. And again, one of the things I think stands out is Jesus is sovereign over these events. It's not happening on Judas' timetable. It's happening on Jesus' timetable. Things are happening as he intends. He tells Judas, hurry up, work faster. The, the Jews didn't want, they didn't want to crucify Jesus at the Passover for fear of the crowd. But this was God's timetable. And so Jesus is accelerating. It's God's will for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed during the Passover. And so Jesus is controlling the timing. He, we see his, his unrivaled sovereignty and supremacy here, even in the timing. And then lastly, number 11, we see the stunning purity of Jesus. The stunning purity of Jesus. And so, again, we referenced this earlier, but John, I think, very skillfully and artistically, he, he calls our attention in verse 30 to what's really going on spiritually. So, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It was night. It was. It was, it was the beginning of a dark time for Jesus. But it was supremely dark for Judas. It was nighttime of his soul. And you contrast that black darkness of Judas' sin with the, again, the purity of Jesus. And it's against that backdrop of night that the radiant purity of Christ stands out. And, 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 and later, in a parallel passage, we know that Judas later testifies to Jesus' innocence. That, that Judas' defection, it later provides us impartial witness to, to Jesus' uh, own moral purity. He later testifies in his remorse, Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas had known Jesus intimately for over three years, and yet he couldn't come up with one single reason to justify his treachery against Christ. Nothing. He had nothing. He saw the real Jesus. He saw behind closed doors Jesus. You don't get to see the real me. Brooke and my kids know the real me. And, and so I, I, I pray to God there's not a, a large level of duplicity in my life, but, but with Jesus there was none. He was, he was the same. They, and so Judas saw no sin, no hypocrisy, no duplicity. He wasn't one way with the crowds, and then he got with the twelve, he was tired and grumpy and, and demanding. No. Judas saw no sin in Jesus, and he testifies. Shed, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so again, against that backdrop of Judas' sin, we see the purity, the righteousness of Christ. And we, we alluded to this at the beginning. Before we, the application is not, let's all pick up our stones and hurl them at Judas and say, what a scoundrel, what did you do? How could you do that? We need to realize again that apart from God's grace, we're just like him. We are. And you bring that into our present context. You think of those who've sinned in, in grievous ways, and we're the same, apart from God's grace. We, we all had the seeds of betrayal of Christ in our hearts before God graciously saved us. And so just a, just a, a few lessons in conclusion here, and then we're going we're gonna, to, again, direct our, our words and our thoughts and our voices to Christ and praising Him, this glorious one that we've been seeing in this passage, but just a few lessons real quick from Judas, and then we'll, again, sing of Christ. Just, first one is this. Sinners need more than a good example to be saved. Need more than a good example. Judas, Judas had the best example that ever lived. He saw, he saw perfection in, in all his interactions with Jesus, but he was still dead in his trespasses and his sins. Unless the Holy Spirit imparts new life, uh, sinners are not capable of believing in Christ and being saved. They're, 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 God's got to work. And so I would just say even parents and workers, all of us as evangelists, but don't forget this. This is why we've got to pray. We've got to talk to God and plead for the souls of those around us. It's not a given. It doesn't rub off on people. Salvation isn't, isn't, isn't transferred by just close contact like a cold that many of you are probably going to get today. Uh, 
That's not how it works. It's God's got to work in a heart. It's a gift. Second, religion's not enough. Religion is not enough. You, you know this, but religious, religious people can be blind to their need for the new birth. You can grow up in church. You can be a, a, a good, moral, religious person. You can, can memorize Bible verses and get all kinds of awards and plaques for it. You can know all the Bible stories and, 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 and teach the flannel graph lesson. You can, can serve in the church and you can be without hope and without God in this world. And a case in point would be, well, besides Judas, would be the Apostle Paul. He took great pride in his religious heritage, Judaism. He was more religiously zealous than any of his peers. And yet God struck him down on the Damascus Road. And he wanted him to to see the the futility of his self-righteousness. And that he would come to know the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And religion's not enough. So if you grow up in church, if you, if, you, if you have a lot of religious familiarity, that's great, that's a gift from God, it's nothing we should spurn. But this is, this is a tender warning there, is you need the new birth. You need the new birth, and that comes by faith in Christ. And so turn from your self-righteousness, turn and trust in Christ alone, and be saved. And then thirdly, there's one final Tender warning. It's don't reject the love of Jesus. Again, Jesus loved Judas. I don't think I have to jump through any theological hoops to say that. I know there you, we'll, we start splitting hairs and what is that? How is the, God's love and electing love and all of that? But I, I don't think there's any... I can unapologetically apologetically say Jesus loved Judas like I can say to anybody. Jesus loves you. He washed Judas' feet. He held out an invitation to him right to the end. But Judas walked away from the love of Christ. Don't, don't do the same. Don't reject the love of Christ. No matter how badly you've sinned, no matter what you've done and what you think it's impossible for God to forgive you from, the Lord graciously reaches out to you, even right now, and with His love, and says, come to me. Come to me. That invitation is open. He invites sinners to come to take the living water without cost. So you can believe him even now. Well, the final thing is for all of us who know Christ, and we're going to sing now, and this is a, this is the way to respond. As we've been seeing the glories of Jesus this morning, it's to it's to say, Lord, what a beautiful name yours is. The name of Jesus, what a wonderful, beautiful, powerful name. And so let me pray, and, and then we will sing to the Lord together. Lord, we do exalt the name of Jesus Christ together, Lord. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. We're thankful, God, that in Your mercy You have, for all those in Christ, You have saved us. You have have brought us out of death to life, from darkness to light. You've caused us to be born again to this living hope. And so it's only Your mercy, God. But we then just revel in the the glories of Your matchless name. And we sing to You with full hearts and loud voices, God. What a beautiful, wonderful, powerful name. Your name, the name of Jesus. In whose name we pray, Amen.